Q&A on all topics for long-term care facilities. A conversation with the healthcare experts at Quality Insights. Good afternoon and welcome to our series of webinars focused on bringing you information about COVID-19 related topics. The information in these weekly webinars is geared toward long-term care and skilled nursing facilities, but we encourage everyone who's interested to attend. My name is Kathy Caudill. I'm a communication specialist with Quality Insights. Today, we'll be having a Q&A on all topics for long-term care facilities. We have a panel of Quality Insights healthcare experts here today to discuss frequently asked questions, including questions submitted prior to this webinar. And now I'd like to briefly introduce today's panelists. First, I'll introduce our quality improvement specialists. Deborah Wright is our QI specialist for East Central and Northeast Pennsylvania. Hattie Austin is QI specialist for Western Pennsylvania. Penny Imes is QI specialist for North and South Central Pennsylvania. And Shirley Sullivan is QI specialist for Southeastern Pennsylvania. And Christopher Henry is the QI specialist for all of West Virginia. Also joining us is Jennifer Brown, who is our infection control preventionist and Dr. Jean Storm, who is Quality Insights Medical Director. Welcome everyone. To get us started, we are going to respond to some of the Q&As that we have received prior to today's call. So this questioner asked, I would like clarification on pneumococcal vaccinations. If a resident had Prevnar 13 in 2019 and then Prevnar 23 in 2020, did they now get the Prevnar 20? What is ultimately the final vaccination? If they have the 20, do we then wait five years and give the 20 again? Okay, so I'm going to tackle this one. And there's always a lot of confusion around the pneumococcal vaccine schedule. You're talking about the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine 13. So this individual received the, the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine 13, followed by the pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine 23. So that's the, the schedule that we're supposed to give our residents. The PCV 13 followed by the polysaccharide vaccine 23. These are two different types of vaccines. They elicit immune response, but just an interesting side note, the conjugate vaccines are the ones that reduce carriage, so carrying of the, resp of the uh, pneumococcal bacteria in the respiratory tract, but the polysaccharide, that's the PPSV23, does not do that. So experts have determined that this is the best way for our residents to receive these vaccines. The PCV first, followed by the polysaccharide vaccines, so that's the 23 second. And if you look at the numbers, those are the serotypes of the pneumococcal bacteria that are included because there's a lot of serotypes of the um, bacteria. So the question is about the PCV20. When, once you complete your series with the PCV13 and then with the 23, you have the option of receiving the PCV20 five years after that completed series. You have the option. But as the CDC shows in their guidance, that this is a discussion that should be undertaken with the provider, with the patient, to make sure that, that you are doing the appropriate thing for the patient. So it is the, the wording is not definitive. It's not everyone should get the PCV20 after they get their completed series. That is not how the wording is. The wording is it is a shared decision-making process. 
So this is a may receive. If the if the resident gets PCV20, you're done. That's it, one and done. So you never get PCV20 and then repeat that. You never do that. So we would never repeat PCV20. And I think that's what this questioner is asking. So the answer to this question is they can get PCV20 after that completed series if the provider feels that it is the best decision in this individual, but you would never repeat PCV20. That is not in the guidance. One person uh, wrote in, I use the CDC Pneumorex app that will tell me what vaccine the resident is due, if any, based on what they have already had or haven't had. Super helpful. So thank you for submitting that information. I agree. The CDC, all the tools on the CDC are, I think someone is asking. So if they had the 13, I, I wish I could pull up this guidance. I don't know why my, my screen is not allowing me to share it. Um, oh, wait, mate, there it is. Now it is. Okay, here we go. <laughs> that was difficult. Um, so I think the question was, if they received PCV13 only at any age, then they can get the PCV20 as option A. Can you see this? Option A. And then option B, they can also receive the PCV, the, the polysaccharide 23, either option A or option B. But you're not going to do both. You're not going to give the PCV 20 and then give the polysaccharide 23. This is a really great, um, this is on the CDC. It was just updated recently. So it's a, a really great resource. And the other thing we can do just to hop in there, I know if this was just updated recently with the option A and the option B prior, it didn't have two options. So the decision tree that we used and that we have been putting out there for everyone says if they've had the 13, then a year and nothing else, a year later, you would give the 23. So now that they have this option A where everything can kind of be the, the PCB 20 versus determining the 23, 13, 15, all that other stuff, we will update that decision tree in the near future and get that out to everyone. All right. I think we're ready to move on to our next question. But if anybody has follow-up questions about the pneumococcal vaccine, please uh, drop that in the chat and we'll get back to it. So the next question is, uh, can you explain again where to complete our annual staff influenza reporting? Yeah, so I can take that one. And I'm just going to preface this by saying um, I'm going to give you a lot of information, but Kathy is going to put two um, links in the chat that will recap all of this and um, give you the trainings on where, where this information was gathered from. So the first thing you have to be is, is enrolled in NHSN, which by now I'm sure everyone is enrolled in that. Um, if you were some a facility that was previously entering the optional influenza um, data on a weekly basis when you did your COVID vaccine, the questions are exactly the same. It's just in a different location. So I'm going to try to um, verbally and, and hopefully you can visualize where, where you would find this information. But again, the, the slides that Kathy's going to drop in the chat shows you um, screenshot by screenshot of where to find this information. So when you initially log in to NHSN, on that first screen after you log in, there's a drop-down box where you would pick your facility. Above that, the first drop-down box um, for most of us probably say long-term care facility. 
if you click on that drop down box and you also have the option of other components, so maybe it's um, the, the healthcare personnel safety component or something else that you're reporting in NHSN, you could potentially have multiple listings there. You want to look to see if you also have the healthcare personnel safety component. So you would pick that from that very first drop down box. The second drop down box would be your facility, and then you would be going into NHSN. So to start the conversation, we're going to pretend that you have that. And then if you don't, I'll tell you how to um, add that module to that drop down box. So you'll pick the healthcare personnel safety component. And then once you do that, you would go to that left-hand side menu uh, box that's in blue on all the screens once you're in NHSN. And you're going to go to the vaccination summary on the left-hand side menu. And from there, you're going to pick the annual vaccination flu summary. Once you do that, it's going to look just like, like I said, just like that weekly influenza reporting that you did with your um, weekly COVID vaccination reports. Now, if you didn't have that healthcare personnel safety component in that initial drop-down box, you'll need to activate that module. And we've we've worked with a couple of facilities, and we're still you know trying to test all the different possibilities how you can activate this. But what we're seeing is only the facility administrator has the ability to activate additional components, and this is something different than um, those of us that had facility administrator rights. So how you would find who is in your system as the facility administrator is, again, from that blue menu box, you're going to look um, and click on the facility section. And from the facility section, first, you can go all the way down to the bottom, and there'll be two um two roles that were signed, one the facility administrator and one for the primary contact for the building. That whoever is listed as the facility administrator in that particular question is the only person that can add or edit a component module. So you wanna go in, see who that facility administrator is in there. Hopefully it's the person that's still there. Hopefully they know how to um, log into NHSN. And then they would, once they do that, they would, again, you would click on that facility um, tab in that blue menu box, and then you would click on add, edit a component, and then you would check the box next to healthcare uh, personnel safety. Once that's done, you'll be prompted to add users and add a primary contact. And then once that's done, um, both of those individuals will be able to add additional users or add this role to current users. Now, if you go into that facility administrator and that person's no longer there, then you'll have to go to NHSN and request the administrator to be changed because only that person can change that. If you need help with that, you can reach out to one of us and we'll, we'll be happy to, to work with you. But I do suggest that even though the annual reporting is not due until May 15th, a lot is depending on who that administrator on file in NHSN is. So I strongly recommend that even if you're not ready to input the information, at least go in and see who's that administrator and can they access NHSN and can they activate that module. Once the module's activated, then, then you know you'll be good. But if you can't do those pieces, that's um, 
something you want to start working on now so that you can make sure that when it gets to be May 15th or you're ready to input your annual influenza for staff um, vaccination rates, you have the ability to do that. If you struggle throughout any of this, you can feel free to reach out to myself or any of any of the quality improvement specialists and um, we can help you with that. Okay, thanks, Deb. Our next question is, we have several residents receiving dialysis who have tunneled dialysis catheters. We know these residents are at increased risk of catheter-associated infections. Are there any additional measures we can take regarding infection control in these individuals to prevent infections? Yeah, so I'm going to um, talk about this question. So the CDC has released guidance recently indicating that enhanced barrier precautions should be utilized during direct care with residents who are colonized with MDROs. We talked about MDROs last week. Um, so you're going to utilize enhanced barrier precautions in residents who are colonized with MDROs when contact precautions do not apply. This is not the same as isolation. This is enhanced barrier precautions. And we would utilize these precautions with residents who have wounds and or indwelling medical devices. So this includes dialysis catheters. Enhanced barrier precautions mean that when um, staff are conducting high contact resident care activities, they're going to utilize gown and gloves. So essentially, we're going to be using gloves and a gown to prevent when they have direct care activities like toileting, bathing or showering, dressing, changing linens, changing a resident's brief, doing some dressing changes, central line changes, urinary catheter changes, feeding tube changes, trach changes. Essentially, we're going to prevent the that MDRO from getting on staff's clothing and then the staff going to the next room and then transferring that MDRO, other bacteria, to another resident. So we're going to prevent transmission of those MDROs in the facility. And this using enhanced barrier precautions has been shown to reduce MDRO prevalence in facilities. So that's what the CDC is recommending now. Thank you, Dr. Storm. Next question, a quick question relating to this one, a follow-up question. Does enhanced barrier precautions require signage and provider orders? So I'm gonna tackle provider orders. I would let the provider know of your of your assessment and for um, recommendations from the provider, um, whether or not that requires a an order from the provider, I think is really going to really change from facility to facility. I would recommend that you get a provider order so the provider understands why you're doing what you're doing. And I would actually have it be just a blanket order in the facility. If you have an individual who has an MDRO colonization, if you have a resident who has an indwelling device, has a wound, that that provider is on board with you utilizing enhanced barrier precautions throughout the whole facility. CDC on their website for enhanced barrier precautions does have signs that you can print out and they suggest that you put the signs somewhere in the resident's room and also in the bathroom so staff understands that you need to utilize gown and gloves with direct care. 
Thank you for your question. Um, next question, do nursing homes have to use QAPI tools and resources from CMS to be considered in compliance with the QAPI regulation? This is Shirley. I can take this. Um, no, it is not mandatory to use the CMS QAPI materials. Um, you know, there are tools available through many different organizations, you know, through CMS, as well as through us here at Quality Insights. You can use your EHR vendor um, or any resources that you find helpful in your QAPI compliance. Now, um, the CMS resources, though, are a good place to start to review your QAPI materials and the principles. And I do recommend that if you haven't had a chance to look at CMS's QAPI at a glance. Um, this is a great resource to help it understand in the QAPI process, and it has many links to tools that you can use, and I can put a link to that in the chat. And then if you have any questions or are looking for specific tools, you know, please reach out to one of us at Quality Insights, and we'll be happy to help you. And thank you, Shirley. Mm -hmm. Next question says, I have heard there is an updated entrance worksheet for surveyors when they enter my building for a survey. Is there a way to get an advanced copy of this so we know what to have ready? I can take this question for you. Thanks, Kathy. Um, yes, there is. Um, if anyone, <clears throat> I know this is of interest to everybody. Uh, everything you need for our survey preparedness can be found on cms.gov. Uh, once you go to that site in the search box, you would put nursing home in and search for the link that says nursing homes slash CMS. You can scroll down to the downloads and see a zip file of survey resources. Uh, here you will find the updated uh, entrance worksheet, all the critical pathways, and many other helpful tools that uh, will help you give a successful survey. Uh, it is a study guide uh, that's available with an appendix. So let's see, let's, our next question is, what are the critical pathways that you mentioned, Christopher? Uh, those are step-by-step uh, survey pathways that surveyors use to explore different areas uh, and to guide them whenever they do a survey. Uh, they cover everything from abuse to dining to med pass, any kind of thing that you can think of. Um, and an updated pathway for UTIs and catheters was just added in February, which Dr. Storm mentioned earlier. Uh, use these to ensure your policies and procedures match the regulations. And again, it's an excellent guide to use with the uh, QAPI. And our last question, does the staffing mandate for nursing homes now include the bivalent booster? Yes, it. Uh, the mandate is still just for the primary series. The definition of up-to-date when entering information in NHSN includes the bivalent uh, vaccine, but it's not considered uh, a mandatory to work with uh, long-term care. Okay, thank you. Now we have a question in the Q&A that Jennifer already answered uh, directly, but I'll, I'll go ahead and read it off so we can have it here for the rest of us. Now, if I could find the Q&A because I lost it. Hi, Kathy. Miss, uh, I know I have sent an email on this, but I was wondering if with employee exemptions for the COVID vaccine, do we need to just have the signed exemption from the employee or do we need to attach backup documentation from clergy or physicians? Jennifer, I'll let you answer that out loud. Well, I know Jennifer's having issues with her voice. Yeah, sorry, guys. Oh, um, I apologize. I'm a little bit under the weather today, but um, I just put in 
Uh, each facility should track and document each exemption request according to their facility policy. And when you are tracking those exemptions, make sure that you have any supporting documentation attached to that. The most important thing with this issue is to make sure that your facility policy clearly outlines the current process for medical or religious exemptions. Because when surveyors are looking, um, they're gonna be looking more for whether or not you have an effective process for staff to request a religious exemption for a uh, sincerely held religious belief. And, you know, if that process is easily followed and if you're following the process that you put in place. And I'll just add to that, that um, if, as far as the medical exemptions, make sure you're following those uh, critical element pathways because there is a link within that that list the current acceptable medical exemptions. And as someone who was recently in the facilities, we did have some um, staff that had medical exemptions and the surveyors opened that link. And even though our medical exemption, uh, we actually sent it back to this individual's provider three times. We had multiple clarifications. We were comfortable with the exemption. But the reason that was on the form was not an acceptable reason when you clicked on that link. So with the medical exemptions, just make sure that, that you're following that link and that critical element pathway to make sure that the diagnosis is one that is on the approved medical exemption list. And Jen, um, Misty followed up with, so the supporting documentation is per facility and not state mandated. Is that correct? No, you have to have it, but how you are um, going to be tracking your form and everything, whatever process you have in place, that is facility specific. And, and I think too, what Misty um, is is asking, because she's um, she and I have been talking about this back and forth also, is the religious exemption that's where you really have to have your facility policy. So um, religious is wide opened and um, very interpretive, but I don't know if that was the right word or not, but that that's where you really have to have that facility policy of how are you going to handle a religious exemption? And then you just need to be consistent for all of your staff and follow your policy where the medical, you have to have that link and, and make sure that the diagnosis is an approved diagnosis. I hope that answers your question, Misty. And I'll, I'll share a link to the EEOC. Uh, they have a guideline for how to help handle some of the religious documentation, um, you know, to avoid any religious discrimination uh, things. So I'll put that in the chat. Okay, thank you. So we have um, another Follow-up question, I think, on this topic, and then I see a hand raised, and we'll get to you next. Uh, in the chat, someone asked, is the screening of staff slash visitors still required from CMS for COVID-19? So I'll start, and hopefully Jen um, can, can chime in, because we've had this question frequently presented to both of us, and, in, and I don't have the numbers memorized, but I know Jennifer does. Um, in the one... Um, PA Han, it clearly stated that you had to have that screening. And the in a follow-up Han, 
it doesn't address it. So nowhere have Jennifer or I been able to find where it actually says you can stop. All we have are two different PA Hans, one that clearly states you have to have it and one that no longer addresses it. So, um, and, and Jennifer, I'm sure can throw those two PA Hans in, in the chat. Um, that's all really all we have. We, we do not have any supporting documentation that says you do not have to do it. We just have the Han that says you do and the Han that was updated that no longer has that in there. So again, it's going to come down to your facility policy and you um, evaluating the risk for your area and the transmission in your area. Thank you, Deb. Uh, we'll look to see if anyone else has any questions at this time. It looks like there are not any. So I think we can go ahead and uh, wrap up for today. I'd like to thank all of our panelists for joining us here today and thank all of you for joining us. You can check out our other interviews at qualityinsights.org slash QIN slash multimedia 